beep. Never mind the podcast. Number three. All right, we're going to talk about The Clash's self-titled record that came out in 1977. I'm going to go a little bit further back because now we're getting into records that meant something to us at a certain time. Um, so this is my pick for this uh this go round. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think about this pick? We were gonna do the Joshua Tree by U two, and I don't think we'll ever do that. But I don't know. I'm excited about Joshua Tree. I'm 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 genuinely excited about Joshua Tree. Um, this record, um, it it came out when I was only six, so from I I think the Clash. I think the my introduction to the Clash was, com, uh, what's it called? Combat Rock. Yep. So Combat Rock is what in the eighties, eighty three ish, eighty two. I think it's like eighty two. Um, so this is this was released. This is actually two different records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nineteen seventy seven released in the UK on CBS Records, and it didn't come out to the states until almost nineteen seventy nine. Almost two years later, when the the U.S. got their version, and the U.S. version is a completely different. Uh, it wasn't just like one or two tracks off. It's like on there's four. Well, yeah, on the on the U.S. version, the tracks missing are "Deny," "Cheat," "Protect," "Blue," "48 Hours," and "White Riot's" original version. So it is four plus the "White Riot." They changed it for the U.S. version. Um, yeah, and I think you were only. I think it was. Um, it was cool. Like their first release in the states was "Give Enough Rope," which is their second record. But you can get the first one like only like on import, which kind of made it you know a little bit more exclusive, which is kind of cool. Um, the copy, well, but the copy that I got was obviously the American press, uh, which I'll get into. But no, you brought up your introduction to the Clash with Combat Rock. Um, that's when you know they're they were really blowing up. They're like they played the US Festival. I think that's pretty much when they were done too, as the Clash, because without Mick Jones, they weren't the fucking Clash. And then, but audio, are, uh, I can't think of that name. What? What's Mick Jones's band? Big now? Audio Dynamite. Big Audio Dynamite starts right after that because yeah, that's like early '80s. But um, they they had. They had hits. They had um, Should I Stay or Should I Go and um, Rock the Casbah. They're huge. But I remember you bought the tape. Man, I'm the, lots of that. You bought the tape, the cassette tape. The Combat Rock. And I remember yeah. we went to our cousin's house and we brought it. And our cousin Debbie, she, um, you know, because these are our older cousins and they were like, they were like rockers, you know. They listened to like metal and like, you know, pop and well, just, she's the one who got you into kiss right well that's what i'm getting yeah. at yeah so then you brought that tape and then we came over to their house and i remember they were like oh put that tape on to listen to man i'm just they um so she wanted to hear rock the casbah so we put that tape on or whatever and then yeah she had um i was looking through her records and then i pulled out kiss alive too and it just blew my mind with that picture and kind of changed my life and made me really like I want to play in a band that's what I want to do and then she gave me that copy and then later I took it home and just obsessed and about it were, and started having nightmares about Gene Simmons it was crazy you were a kiss army kid forever 
Well, I wasn't actually in it, but I'm yeah. I'm but to, you know what I mean. Like, you became for, I'm a lifer, and it's pathetic. You but became I love a them. Kiss fan to the point where you have rubber duckies that are Kiss fucking characters. Um, um, so yeah, this was out before we really. I'm six years. I'm six years old, seven years old, and. I only listened to the music that the grown-ups around me listened to, but I actually did start asking to buy records, and I think the first record that I asked somebody to buy me was Glenn Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy, because I hung out with my grandpa's sister, or she actually babysat me, and she was a country fan. So was my grandfather, um, Lorenzo. Uh, but, you know, listening to, the, listening to the 70s radio stations in my dad's car, my mom's car, so, like, the Elton John, like, anything that's happening in 77, 78, punk is happening, but we're listening to contemporary adult radio in the States. We're not, the punk, punk hasn't, like, got to us yet, technically, in, in the sense of our, you know, our small circle of, of uh, how we grew up and stuff. So getting to going having to go backwards to get this record having to go back you know being introduced by rock the casbah by that by the combat rock record and then being like oh so i went and bought the 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 two volume vinyl called the story of the clash which had previous songs on it songs from london calling songs from this album and having to go back and be like oh these guys made records you know five years before what what were they like total total on time they were only together for a short period of time right what do you mean like as the class all existence yeah oh, like they were 77 to like 83 80, yeah as that classic as uh, that lineup before lineup. cut the crap yeah with a different uh with the drummer <clears throat> change like three drummer changes or whatever right and um, then the the for as far as like impact so Technically, this didn't have any impact on me at the time because it came out before I was, you know, aware of it. But I wanted to bring up this one thing, which is like kind of it kind of tripped me out because I'm a fan of Bob Marley as well. But Bob Marley, so on the on the tra- on the uh, on the original the Clash debut, um, th- it was th- they were short of delivering a full album, so their influence of the reggae music at the time, they did a cover of Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves, which uh, Lee Scratch Perry actually produced that cover for them. Uh, and I don't know how they got introduced. I don't know what the, back, you know what the background is on that. The whole running time for this album is 43 minutes and 20 seconds, including doing the Police and Thieves cover. That's long. It's long for a punk album. And... And so Lee, Lee Scratch Perry, the producer, you know, major Jamaican producer with his, with his group and a product, you know, he did a lot of production. He had his own studio in Jamaica. So he introduced or he, he shows this particular recording to Bob Marley. Bob Marley ends up making a whole song dedicated to the fact that the Clash covered Junior Mervinson called Punky Reggae Party. And he actually calls out groups in the lyrics of the song and he says the whalers will be there the damn the jam the clash my talls will be there and then he throws in dr feelgood too i had zero idea who dr feelgood was until just a couple years ago for me a dr feelgood is like a drug dealer 
person. You know what I mean? Like when you read that mm-hmm. lyric, you're like, oh yeah, the the guy bringing the weeds is gonna be there. Mm-hmm. Didn't know, didn't realize he was actually calling out a group like Doctor Feelgood, who, if we're gonna talk, you know, like that just blew my mind that that he had they had such an impact on a global artist like Bob that he actually recorded a song dedicated, you know, like calling the clash out, like inspired by them doing a cover of a reggae song instead of being angry about it. Like, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, like what we would do today, people would be like, oh, that's cultural appropriation or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, he was just like, oh, shit, these guys jam with us. They like, you know, they fuck with us. They like this kind of music. They made their own version of a classic reggae song. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to, you know, pay homage to them and make this whole punky reggae party song, which was, to me, was like really cool to find out, which I never knew. I, I've known this song. Yeah. You know, since well, forever. Probably also because like Bob Marley is like he just seemed like someone that could just see talent and appreciate it for what it was. Where maybe like someone like maybe if it got in the hands of like Peter Tosh, maybe he would have like talked shit about it because of the what I know about him. Just you know, he would have been the one. That <laughs> he would have been called upset, out like, like "Why oh, are white boys making our music?" Yeah, you shit? know. Yeah. I think at that time there was a lot of. Um, a lot of synergy between, you know, like <coughs> Jamaicans living in uh, in England, and I mean, shit. There, there's no like, there's so many things that don't exist without, without like African Americans in England as far as <coughs> things that turned into punk rock. You know, like Rude Boys, like Skinheads. People don't even people think of Skinheads, and they just think that it's like Nazis and white power, and it's like. The first skinheads were friends with black people because black people are the real skinheads. You know, right, they're yeah. the ones that <laughs> that came up with all the fashion. Just like the same with like mod. Like all the mods were doing were trying to dress like the album covers of the people that they saw from like you know like the four tops, the, the Temptations, whale, the and, Whalers, the the whole two tone move. Well, they were copying. Yeah, all they those, were to- yeah. all Motown too. Yeah, the Motown but suits and ties, and stuff. a lot of it just gets lost. Um, but that's like something that you know <clears throat> points out that there was an actual like like dialogue that was being traded between them. And if you listen to that song, Police and Thieves, you listen to the original, it's like. It's like a dub song. It's like a reggae song. It's like yeah. really, really slow. Really got this cadence and like just gorgeous. Like his the way that he sings on top of it's really nice. And then the Clash's version, it's really I don't want to say it's just it's it's like barbaric almost. Where it's just these chords and it's really brash, but <clears throat> it sounds good. I had never heard that song before, and I you know. Well, I got that record again. Best records. That's that's going to be coming up a lot because that's where we spent a lot of our time. But I remember first getting into the Sex Pistols just because I saw something on TV and I was like, I was just obsessed. And then when I started buying records, this was I think I was in about like seventh grade. <clears throat> I had a few friends that we used to ride bikes down to Best Records and we would buy records. Uh, my friend David Knox and I remember I was buying a lot of tapes, but every once in a while I would buy a record. And I always like to maximize my, like if I went to the store with, I don't even remember how much money we would have. I don't even think it was 20 bucks back then. Maybe you'd go to the store with like $10 because you can actually get a record for 10 bucks. Um, and I remember I would always want to maximize 
my yield from a record store like trip like like there might be something i really want but i might be able to get two of something instead mm. and maybe i would make like like take a chance on something so i remember the clash and um i was really into buying tapes because i had a walkman and i wanted to listen to it you know either on the way home or just you know not have to fight over the record player but i saw the clash's first record and it was the nice price it was like 399 oh yeah that was like when they used to sell them at like like Gemco, and there was a store in Norwalk that I don't even know if it was a chain. It was called Zodi's, and it was like yeah. a Kmart. They used to have like records in there, you know, like kind of how they. I guess it would be like if they had a record section at Target, which I guess they do, but it's CDs now. I don't know, but it was three ninety nine, and just looking at the cover, and I knew of the name of the band, I was aware, but I was like, man, this just looks punk as shit. Like I have to have this, <coughs> and it's four dollars. So I probably bought that record and a tape instead of just buying one, you know, piece of yeah. music. I remember bringing it home and it didn't blow me away. Probably has to do with the pressing because I think those nice price records are like just secondhand, like, you know, not really the best mastering. They're just yeah. kind of not throwaway, but they're one it's thing, basically not the best quality. One thing that I that this has nothing to do with this particular album. This has to do with just in general, the, the music industry in general. But a lot of the a lot of the pressings that went from record tape a track they used one single master mm -hmm. and they would just be like oh this this was mastered for vinyl but we're going to take this master and we're going to make the tape version of it as well they didn't do like separate masters for different you know whatever mm -hmm. the format or the media was at the time they <clears throat> it, it's, and we especially got that we especially got that poor quality when cds first came out because all the first pressings of mm -hmm. cds that when they first launched were all vinyl mastered and the cd just sounded it was like this low and you had to like really turn it up and then you got that hiss yeah it wasn't a record hiss it was like this electric digital hiss just white noise yeah. yeah just white noise and so i think that's what happened when you would get yeah you'd get the discount record it was a low quality pressing on shitty recycled tape for three ninety nine. <laughs> I even I mean I still have the record and it's like flimsy, you know? Yeah. But regardless <clears throat> the cool thing about it was there's like almost sixteen songs on it. It's like seven and eight tracks on seven tracks on one, eight on the other. Um but it didn't blow me away. It wasn't like, you know, I remember when I got Nevermind the Bollocks on tape. And I'm like that record did everything that I wanted it to do. It fit with the imagery. It fit with the way that I felt, like just this angst. And even though much later I discovered like three contemporary records at the time. You have the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bollocks, Clash's self-titled record, and the Damned, the Damn, Damn, Damned. Now, all three of those, like the one that's punker than all of them clearly is the Damned. Like that, they have speed, they've got fury, they've their lyrics are, you know, like like the Sex Pistols, they're singing, they're, they're talking shit about the New York Dolls, they're singing about like, it's almost like, I mean, they sound like what they, that, that album to me sounds like what it was, which was like manufactured. It's like, let's calculate, okay, you're supposed to look like this, let's write lyrics that are saying these things, let's piss people let's piss off you know people and the government by making god save the queen whatever 
I was a kid. I ate it all up because it, it fucking looked great, sounded great. But listening to it, it's like that record has so many guitar tracks on it and it's so pretty. Like it's just so not punk rock because of all the work that they put into the production. The Damned, it's just hit record and you have fucking guys playing way fucking faster than the Sex Pistols, way faster than the Clash, and with so much more intensity, it's like that to me is way more punk rock. That's what's going to make a little kid want to fucking jump out of his window. You know, I can't see wanting to jump out of your window listening to Anarchy in the UK. That's almost like you could kind of square dance to it. It's so yeah. like, kind of slow. So then the Clash's record, like when I got it, I listened to it, I taped it, and nothing really jumped out and grabbed me. But I was like, I know I should have this record, so I kept it. It wasn't until years later that I went on a tour and I took my tapes with me because we had a tape player, and I really started listening to that record, really understanding that, man, these are great songs. Maybe it's not the fastest. Maybe, you know, it's not uh, the best sounding but great songwriting in there. And then I ended up just falling in love with it, where it's, that's one record where I could just put on front to back anytime, don't have to be in a particular mood, and it's going to, I'm not gonna have to skip anything. You know what I mean? Like, I love it, I think it's great. Yeah, I think I, like, like going back, you know, like obviously I had the, their third or fourth record before this one, but really consuming them, especially with that that two volume story the Clash record that I had. It had like it was like a sampler of all the albums up to that point. And I remember one we used to you know we used to make tapes. We would record our records and put them on cassette tape, listen to them in the car because that's the only way we could listen to stuff in the car. Um, and my my friend D, he used to like to make tapes of the same song recorded all the way on you know taking taking up a whole side because he just didn't want to have to rewind it. he just want to hear it over and over and over again yeah and we recorded like listen to this on the way to the beach or something and we recorded straight to hell mm. like six times on one side and we just drove you know from cerritos to the beach it's only like 15 20 minute drive but we're literally just straight to hell over and over and over mm. and like that 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 was on the combat rock record um and then because it, it's and to, and it, there was a huge song that sampled that record by mia called paper planes but like just that something about that the way that they were able to it was almost like each album covered a time period of theirs and a time period just in general across the world like the first album all of it is that punk the punk stuff that came you know, that 77 launch, the Sex Pistols, the Damned, like everything that was happening at the time, it was like political, it was political and apolitical at the same time. The Damned was more of a real punk, like they didn't really talk politics. Sex Pistols mm -hmm. kind of dabbled a little bit, but they also were like more, like you said, manufactured. Mm -hmm. After going back and really listening to, to the first Clash record and thinking about it in terms of like what, you know, I was already a teenager at the time, so this was... To, you know, it's 10 years old compared to the time that I'm listening to it. And at the same time that I'm, you know, listening to like all the different music I'm listening to, hip hop, you know, everything that I'm, that I'm consuming, listening to something like now, like going back now and listening, thinking about this, like to me, Joe Strummer 
he he had a lot of like what Chuck D has with Public Enemy. It's it's like you have this like Public Enemy has this like wall of noise, you know, Bomb Squad production. They've got the 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 funky you know silly sidekick guy, but Chuck's words that are that are coming through, even though he had that commanding voice and he had that cadence that he had, he actually was talking about actual you know happenings at the time and if you go back to the very first clash record a lot of what joe strummer was doing was the same kind of thing it was like he had he didn't have a singing voice he didn't have a sweet voice he had this like really it just it just it just hangs in the balance of just like he's telling you something but it's also going along with the music and mix it's atonal it's atonal and mix mick uh jones's guitar work is like perfectly matched with the way that this is set up, and and Joe Strummer's playing rhythm guitar as well, right? Mm-hmm. He's playing rhythm guitar. Mick Jones is playing lead, um, and then Paul Simonon's like, and I only know this because I've watched the you know the story of the Clash. But his like the way his his demeanor is, he just seems so like you can't shake this guy. Like mm-hmm. he's so chill. He's got you know what he's got like his reggae influence going on in his head. And these two guys are just, one guy's just like, I'm going to give you, you know, what I'm angry about in the form of a song. And Mick Jones is just like, I'm going to play guitar along to this guy. And Paul Simonon is like, I'm just going to be over here in my head, you know, banging out these bass lines. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, it's just a really well-crafted thing of, of like, four different personalities. I don't know if Terry Chimes is in the band at this time mm-hmm. or if Topper no, if so Topper head on is out. Supposedly, you talking about the first record? First record. No, the first record, I think half of it is Terry Chimes, which on my album they credited him as uh, Tory Crimes because they were just basically like talking shit, which is funny. Oh, really? Mhm. And that's why he like he's not on the front cover. That's the other thing that threw me off when I got that. There's record. only three. Such a fucking amazing picture. I guess it's supposedly like outside of their rehearsal space, but he had already quit the band at that time when they took that photo. That's why there's just three of them. And then for me, because when I was a little kid, like I'm totally like the way that I approached playing music was if I heard a record and I, I'm looking at the sleeve and I'm seeing who played on it, you know, like just being really naive and thinking, okay, there's four members in this band. So if I'm listening to the record and I hear like, you know, say it's say it's a band that like, like a Van Halen that just has like, David Lee Roth does not play guitar. Right. So if I'm listening to the record and I'm, I can hear a guitar lead and rhythm, I'm like, who the, who's doing that? This, this guy must be that good, you know, and some people can do that to, to varying degrees. But then when I started hearing like music and like, say, even with drums or whatever, I was just like, well, one person has to be capable of making all of this sound. And I didn't know about overdubbing. <laughs> I didn't know about any recording process. I just was naive. Also, I mean, I was like seven, eight years old and I was like really getting into music where I was buying my own records and studying them and just listening and then you know like seeing three guys on the cover of the clash i'm like well how how are they doing this you know they must be amazing yeah you know you listen to a band like the jam like yeah there's some overdubs but it's like that sounds like a three-piece because it was you know but you can't have three guys in the cover of the, of the clash 
And if you're just looking at it and you don't know anything about them, you have to assume one of those guys is the drummer and then bass and guitar there's a and bass <laughs> and the guitar player is amazing because he's playing <laughs> all this. You know what I mean? But anyways, so I guess, yeah, he Terry Crimes quit the band at the time Terry, they took the Terry photo. Terry Chimes. Uh, yeah, Terry Chimes. <laughs> I'm getting because Tory Crimes. I right, guess. right, 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 right. But apparently... Uh, uh, Topper Head, in which I guess his name's Nicky Head, is uh, plays on half of that too, and like their whole game changed when they got him as the drummer because he was just a better a better drummer, and then Terry Chimes does come back at the end, like when Combat Rock tour happens, like when they played at Shea Stadium with the Who and when they played the Us Festival, like that's Terry Crimes back in because they fired Topper Head because he was a junkie and he was just unreliable. Mm. Um, but it's funny because he wrote the biggest song. He wrote Rock the Casbah, and that was like right. their biggest hit ever. Yeah, and it's not even... <clears throat> it's one of those songs that it bugs the hell out of me when I hear it. Like I, some Something about it, like I loved it when it came out. Like, you know, that's, that was like my foray into this band is Rock mm-hmm. the Casbah. And I used to watch the hell out of that video. Mm-hmm. And... But now something about it just bugs me. Probably, you know, it's one of those things. It's like it's the played out song of theirs, but it's their least. To me, it's not their best song. See, and for me, I don't. I wouldn't think it's their best song either. But like, if I hear it on the radio, I won't change it, and I'll sing along to it. Like I'm just. It's it's a great song. I love it. <clears throat> and there's a song. It's a, it's almost like I'm trying to think of the song on Sandinista that is the. Um, the precursor to that song definitely not as good but it was when topper Hedden was like writing like i don't know if he wrote overpowered by funk which is on combat rock it has that same kind of like disco definitely not as good as that song rock the casbah but there's a song off of sandinista i can't think of the name right now but it's kind of like a precursor to rock the casbah as far as like like, what is this song, you know? Like, this is Radio Clash, which was on that Story of the Clash album that you had, which I always loved, because um, it was a 12-inch. I never knew that it wasn't on a proper record. That has those disco elements and hip-hop, you know, because they were really into hip-hop when they spent, like... They played at the Bond Theater, like, what, like 20 times or something mm-hmm. in New York, getting really into hip-hop and everything. I think that was Mick Jones's doing. But... Um, a song like This Is Radio Clash is completely different from Rock the Casbah, I think. Rock the Casbah is like, like you'd hear that at a roller rink, you know? Yeah. Um, I think the one, that, well, I'm looking at the track list for San Diego. Ivan Meets G.I. Joe was written by Topper. That's, that's the one, That's the one yeah. that's a precursor to and it, it's, yeah. it's all disco. It's kind of a funny song. It, yeah. It's not nowhere near as good. Um, um, the, the, This Is Radio Clash, that, see, now that's a song, because... I think I, I'm pretty sure I still have it. I have like a club mix, oh, twelve inch, good. a twelve inch club mix, different. and it is like you can put you can put that on like at a at a hip hop party. Mm-hmm. You know like that that song will rock at a hip hop party. It's got such a good um, such good elements for like you know like popping and locking kind of like mm-hmm. song. You know, like a little bit of a planet rock, not planet rock sounds, no, but kind of though. But like, like the, that electro, yeah, electro funk kind of to it, and then the the you know the 
the the jangling of the guitar that's got like the reverb or whatever they're doing to it, like overdubbing mm-hmm. the guitar. It sounds, it's like they definitely have that dub influence, but they're making it this modern, you know, electro clash type type song. I love that song, and the video yeah. was really cool. It was like New York graffiti style, like mm-hmm. video, and they're putting up the the big Break giant the boombox and all that. Yeah, um, like I just that's one of the songs that I'll <clears throat> I love that song, and that's. That's that was just a single, twelve inch single or a mm-hmm. seven inch single, or whatever. Um, if if you were to say like, you go back and listen to these records, you know, you're lining those those particulars records released in '77. The biggest for the biggest thing that I hear in a lot of these records is the transformation from rockabilly to what we know as like the precursors to punk. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of what I hear in the Clash, especially the way he sings, is a rockabilly influence. And then they covered like "I Fought the Law," mm-hmm. you know, like what 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 well, they are covered you... brand new Cadillac too on uh, which is another London Calling. Yeah, which is uh, what's the what's the Vince Taylor? I don't know. Vince Taylor and his whatever group is the is the brand new Cadillac original um, full on rockabilly song. Mm-hmm. Especially you know, I mean that's London Calling, but still, it's like what else? What else are you hearing in the in the sense of like influencing of the first record? Like, well, it's all it's pub rock, like, and like Joe Strummer was in the One O Oneers. That was his band before that. Um, apparently, the story is that they played. They were, I guess, the bigger band. Um, Might have been at the Elgin. I don't know. There's all these squats and pubs that were about. Um, the one oneers were playing they were like contemporaries with like Eddie and the Hot Rods, Dr. Feelgood, um, some of the later like harder edged uh pub rock bands like like um the Pirates, you could even say like Slaughter and the Dogs, um Ducks Deluxe, uh so it was like basically all these bands that were just playing dirty rock and roll that was leading up to punk rock and the 101ers were right in there with these bands one of the one of the more successful ones and i guess what it was was the sex pistols played with them like back in 1975 or 76 and then that's when joe strummer saw them and was like i need to change like pub rock is dead like we need to do this and this is where I took a big turn and actually hasn't been that long. I think I want to say less than a year. So that movie, uh, the, the movie about Joe Strummer, what is it called? The, Your Future is Unwritten? Future is Unwritten. Um, the Future is Unwritten. Yeah. So I saw West Way of the World. I loved it. I think it's amazing. I mean, I was, I've been obsessed with The Clash like since I gave that record, this record we're talking about, It's Real Justice. Not when I got it. When I got it, I was probably like 12, but it was when I listened to it as a young adult. I think I was like 18 or 19 on tour, and that's when I really was like, man, I love this. And it's funny because all the people around me made fun of me for liking that album because they were like, why you just listen to old shit? Like, you should be listening to, you know, the stuff that's coming out now. And like, at that time, it was like, it was all this like epitaph and fat records and I was like, I was just over all that stuff. Like I liked some of that Is stuff. Is this song tour with Shoegazer? Yeah. Uh, but it was like, like man, this, to me that was like, there's, you only need one album by like 
maybe two or three bands and then you have the whole like catalog for everything else that sounds like that that's contemporary at that time period in the 90s um it was just boring to me that's why i was going backwards you know that's why i was yeah. like well i want to listen to you know the clash and like um you know just getting to roots of things so anyways um west way of the world i think is one of the best documentaries of any one band like ever made it's just so perfect um and then i remember the the one coming out on joe strummer and i wasn't that excited about it but i was like yeah well, you know like i, I kind of want to watch it for some reason i never saw it and then it got to the point where so many so much time has passed where i was like i kind of never want to see it and then one time one day it was i don't know where it was but it was on some streaming service that i think i belong to and I was like, fuck it, I got time, I'll watch it. I watched it, and it changed my relationship with this band because learning about, like, for one thing, he was privileged, you know, like, he did not grow up poor. The other thing that made it really difficult was, like, I guess he was all, like, into the folk scene. He like he went by Woody because he was so obsessed with Woody Guthrie mm. to the point where he was like he was almost forcing people to call him Woody. So basically, he was like having an identity crisis. Like he didn't know who he was, but yet he was popular. So then, once he started, is this pre Clash or is this way pre Clash? This yeah. Or, yeah, this was like his first, to my knowledge, his first introduction to being a musician. Gotcha. Like he wanted to be a folky. He was all about Woody Guthrie. And he was to the point where he's having people call him Woody. <laughs> and then pub rock's brewing. And then he sees that and was like, oh, well, I want to be a pub rocker now. Mm. So then he kind of adopts like that Teddy Boy look, which is like rockabilly, you know, but it's English style. Um, gets a band, starts the 101ers. They put out one record, which I don't even know if it ever properly came out, but starts playing, you know, living in a punk rock squat. And it's like, you don't have to live like it, it just something was unsettling with me where it's like when I think of like kids, you know, like we didn't grow up poor, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that we were privileged. Right. You know, we definitely had some privileges of having two parents and like, you know, we had musical instruments, you know, there was there was definitely we were we, we had definitely a lot of options that were open to us because of our parents and what they did. Um, and but our, it wasn't like we and had our friends' parents. Oh yeah, like the 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 friends you know the friends that we had, whose parents were had a little bit more means than we did, and they had, you know, they had places for us to go, and we you know we grew up in a neighborhood that had like park systems and and you know community activities. So like I get the yeah by we no means pit, but we're not rich <laughs> by no means were we you know like underprivileged but we weren't i would say privileged to right. this degree where so then whatever we fast forward and then like like we would never have to go and like oh i'm gonna run away from my house and you know go live in like a fucking squat you know like just because it's cool like to me that's fucking stupid um but anyway so then now the one on are playing they're making a name for themselves and then he sees the sex pistols and is like oh well now i want to be a punk rocker mm. it's like it's like he's a poser. Gotcha. But beyond that, whatever, like that bothers me. But the thing that really bothered me was that when I really started getting into the clash, because for me, like lyricism 
could go either way. Like, first and foremost, I have to like the way that it sounds. They could be singing about fucking nonsense, but if it sounds good, I love it. It wasn't until I got to like certain lyrics just struck a chord with me and was like, man, this makes, this is speaking to me. Like, I'm young, I'm angry, I'm not, I'm gonna have to struggle. You know, I didn't even know how much I was gonna have to struggle in my later years, but like, I just knew that it was not gonna be the same for me. Also, being fucking a person of color. You know, when you're a young kid and you're walking around the streets in a multicultural neighborhood, once you start getting older and you start like, I remember growing up and like, I felt like I was the same as everybody. It wasn't until I got through high school and out of high school that it was like, wait a minute, I am not the same as all these people. Right. I am brown and people are judging me instantly. So these lyrics about, you know, uprising and people that don't have shit and you know like once i watched this movie i was like well why am i listening to this guy why should he be a mouthpiece for the oppressed when he is nothing like them you know what i mean like to me that just that just and like even now like i listen to the clash and it just doesn't mean the same thing to me it doesn't mean that i don't appreciate the music and some of that stuff is just in my dna but like i listen to it now with a little bit of a like like a uh behind the curtain you know and like it's it's just it bothers me and like i wish i never would have watched that movie like um it's just you know there's i'm sure there's a lot of like like uh people in the literary world that you know have really good uh books about philosophy or just you know um ways of living but it's like yeah it's it's kind of easier for you guys to write these things and to say these things if you didn't have to fucking go through everything that you're talking about the people you're trying to help you know what i mean like to me it's just like like why the fuck am i going to listen to you tell me about how bad it is for poor people when you don't know what the fuck you're talking about outsiders looking in or insiders looking out, whatever, you, however you want to look at it, um, which the, is the reason hip hop became such a huge thing in the first place. Because you had all exactly the, you had all the inside, like when hip hop broke out, that's exactly what you were getting the direct mouthpieces from people. But even with hip hop, like Ice Cube. NWA, he was the he was the Joe Strummer of the NWA band. Yeah, exactly. There's he always up, he grew up in chats where. But at that point, you know, Easy was the real. At that point, hip hop was already like this wasn't the beginning. No, not because this is the beginning of punk rock. Yeah, and you already have like posers. Right. Um. But with hip hop, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what made me think of it. It's like the origins of hip hop. You can't get any more real than that. These are people that grew up in schools that didn't have music programs. I mean, you're talking about the most, some of the most musical people on earth not being allowed to have access. Those motherfuckers found a way and they created something that has taken over the world to a large degree. But where it came from, it's like, these weren't people like, like, oh, well, I need to fucking buy some Adidas. I need to, it's like, no. At this point, in 1977, you already had someone that came back from New York and was like, okay, you guys, put this shit in your hair. We're getting spikes. We're fucking tearing up the clothes. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. much of it was manufactured. And then you have these what's, people like a Joe Strummer that's like, oh, shit. I was wearing, I was dressing like a teddy boy. Now, 
I'm gonna change my garb and I'm gonna be punk rock like almost the next day. Yeah, what was the lady? Is it Vivian Westwood? It's uh-huh. Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren, yeah. the, the sex shop. Mm-hmm. Or whatever their name of their store was, it turned into the second. They, they jumped it too because yeah. they were doing, they were all about Teddy Boy fashion. Yeah. And then once they fucking went to New York and they met Richard Hell, it was like, shit, this is what we do. You know? And Teddy Boy fashion spawning out of the dandy movement. Like that was during the the Bowie early Bowie years. Well, it's a pre, it's 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 rockabilly revival, and but, it's a it's a conglomeration of like like glam rock and just English fashion, but with a rockabilly twist. Right, and then the rockabillies were the greasers of America, the uh-huh. the greaser you know like the the outsiders, the greasers from the yeah, outsiders. Yeah, and, and that fashion is very like limited as far as it's just turn up jeans a white shirt and a leather jacket like fucking fonzie that's it yeah just just dress like fonzie and that's all you have to do um, fonzie and then just go hey or what's the john travolta movie grease i mean let's like that yeah that's it that's exactly that's t- the uniform that's the it. t-birds the jets whatever so it was at yeah. least they did do something a little more for it because i mean look at the ramones the ramones look like greasers but yeah. yeah, they're punk as shit. And so getting back to The Clash, his first record, it's like you listen to Eddie and the Hot Rods, you listen to later uh, Dr. Feelgood, like it's just it's just rock and roll. They're just playing fucking Chuck Berry like riffs. And then, but The Clash too, and they get kind of called out for it, but I still like, not that I don't, not that I disagree, uh, but I think that it's still their own thing. Not even just because you have someone with an English accent, which to me, Joe Ramone kind of sounds like he's singing with an accent and not a New York accent, but whatever. Can't fuck with them. Yeah. But The Clash definitely has a huge Ramones influence. Like you listen to White Riot and Janie Jones, those songs sound like Ramones songs. Yeah. They're all downstroked. They're not even as fast as the Ramones, but they're... Um, I remember someone, I, I, I think it was in a movie I saw where someone was like, yeah, they put on the new, um, they put on White Riot by, by The Clash. Someone had brought it back to New York and they were like, they thought it was the new Ramones record. Uh-huh. And then they were like, man, aren't you guys pissed? They fucking stole your shit. And they were like, no, if anything, that's, they're flattered by it, you know. Um, but uh, I think that um, there is kind of like a ground zero too where... You have, you know, the Sex Pistols, you have the Damned. If anything, the Damned, to me, spawned, like, hardcore. Because that's where you get faster rhythms. Like, you listen to the Damned, you don't have to go that far to get to, like, a Black Flag or DOA or Bad Brains, for instance. Like, Bad Brains, if they wouldn't have listened to the Damned, they probably wouldn't have, you know... Like, say all they listened to was, and this is just theorizing... If they just had the Clash and the Sex Pistols to listen to, they probably still would have found out a way. But to me, it sounds like they listened to the Damned and were like, Especially "We're going to fucking the speed. faster." That's yeah. what I'm talking about. The rate but of speed. It's that rock and roll, you know, yeah. like. Um, so, like everyone, everyone gives, uh, you know, everyone gives Minor Threat like the 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 stronghold or the throne on that, and I'm like, and maybe because I'm not white, I don't know what it is, but I will. 
I, to me, it's bad brains all the way. Even Minor Threat agrees that it's <laughs> yeah, bad brains. It's like, to me, it's it's bad brains. They is, were on their... Everybody yeah. was on their nuts. Like, I love Ian McKay. I love... Even the Fugazi damned and all. were on their nuts. Yeah, the damned, like, when they came to the States, they were like, we want to play with bad brains because we heard so much about them. And that's and it's like, it's a perfect match. Yeah. You know? But again, going back to like, like the ground zero, like I think that... The Clash or de- the Clash and the Sex Pistols definite like you can tell they're listening to like pub rock like the Sex Pistols have a song called um, it has two different song titles I think there's one that's called Suburban Kid and there's another it's called Satellite but it's the same song and it sounds exactly like this Ducks Deluxe pub rock song mm-hmm. where it's just rock and roll almost like the Stones you know you know I was that's such a trip I was literally just gonna bring up something that's like. It's not necessarily for the sound, but when I was going, when I was like thinking about like just, you know, prepping to like talk about this particular record. So the the first Clash record, self-titled Clash record, one of the songs that came to mind when I was thinking in the terms of like, and even though it's manufactured, uh, or what you're saying is Joe Strummer's manufactured like Mm -hmm. political angst and like, oh, I want to talk about like the life. Yeah, life and whatever. But I was thinking of the Stones and Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I feel like that song is a stepping stone to punk rock in the attitude of not the song structure, not the musical structure of it, but the attitude of what that song is doing, you know, like oh, yeah. railing against the, the, the monarchy and what have you. And like, oh, you're not a man. Very British. You're not a man because you don't smoke the same cigarettes as me. Like, that's fucking punk rock. Mm-hmm. And that's in the 60s you know it's a precursor to punk and like i don't think a lot of people think of the rolling stones as a precursor to punk that's you know, true they would you would think more uh iggy you know the stooges would be more of a precursor to punk or but i really feel like well, the get, kinks too i mean with their veracity like their yeah the, the velocity i think, I think a, there's a direct connection between the kinks even with just the whole the lore of him taking a razor blade to the to the speakers to get that original uh, just <clears throat> yeah so you know like I said it's an unex- unrecognized influence to me listening and going like really thinking about like that song like you know the the pr- the, the protest aspect of uh, and just the whole like attitude of can't get no satisfaction um, I never thought of that flat way but yeah it's true and not I mean, not musically, but just the way. Not musically too. I mean, it's, know, dun, it's dun. riff. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the songs that always like get pointed out. It's always Louie Louie. It's always the Kinks, either all day and then all of night, and or you really got me. Um, it's like Link Ray. You Definitely know. Rumble. <laughs> um, and it's also, you know, all the New York stuff, Velvet, Velvet Underground, the Stooges, the MC Five. Um, all the American garage shit, like like love seven and seven is. Yeah. But the thing that's funny is, yeah, the Rolling Stones probably just get maybe overlooked because they're looked at too much. Hmm. You know. But yeah, because you wouldn't think of like this huge band. Yeah, but also, I mean, UK punk rock, some of it is very British. And the Rolling Stones are very British. And that's a very British song, like how you're breaking it down. Yeah. So it makes sense. Like, because a lot of the people, I mean, I think that there were some similarities. If you look at, if you just look at footage of what London looked like in 1977, 76, 
It almost looks exactly like New York, where it's just fucking garbage. It's a wasteland. So things, there, there's a reason why, other than just someone coming over and importing things, and people, you know, cross, like passing information the, the long, hard way by, by ship and by just letters and by physical, physically coming, right. there was a reason why those two parts of the world aligned because they were going through the same things, you know? And then you get into, like, Los Angeles. It's totally different. Uh, I mean, sh- shit was happening in L.A. around that time, too, but different aspect because, if anything, they had a good weather, you know? Like, we had surf, and we had, like, yeah, we, everything that started in Hermosa Beach, you know, with, like, Black Flag and the Descendants and, the, and all I think that when shit. You, I think when you walk down... You know, like, put yourself in 1970s Times Square with the junkies and, like, the porn shops and the, the peep shows and whatever. You know, all the all the the grungy part of the city. But you're also just, you just, there's this immense, like, closing in on you because all the buildings are mm-hmm. just, it, it makes you feel suffocated. Mm-hmm. And you have this, like, break... You, you want to break out, but you don't want to leave the city kind of a feel, you know, like right here You could see over everything, you know, but downtown's barely building buildings that there's we're barely getting a mini skyline over here You know mm-hmm. over there. You're just you're just in growth and then you're spending most of your time under the fucking City in the goddamn subway, you know yeah. here. You're driving you're cruising basically mm-hmm. We're cruising we got Sun we have you know everything all the buildings the only thing you can't see over is the fucking mountains you know and and i but think you could drive over them unless yeah an you could yeah you could drive wherever you want and then you got the coast and the other you know we're like chill and that's the the difference in the demeanor of the of the mm-hmm. people and we did have our own you know la you know we had the germs and we had you know we had our own la scene but mm-hmm. it's a totally different uh approach to it and the way it feels and the damned the Ramones and you know these these classic records, the first records that came out, like that's that is the story of where they're growing up in the city that they're living in, and mm-hmm. you know the compression that they're under. <clears throat> and I mean, thank God for having all that stuff. Like yeah, I couldn't more imagine stuff to that. complain about. I think, um, but I think I think twofold. I think they had more stuff to complain about, and they also had. They had something that we didn't have here is they had the proximity to each other like mm-hmm. you have not that it was more organic than a band forming here but i feel like you could be you could live down the hall from a guy playing guitar and you happen to be you know taking interest in singing or playing bass and i feel like they had a lot more closeness to each other in in terms of like all the bands Mm-hmm. Like you know, you like that's that story of the bands that were in the room when the Sex Pistols performed at that college, mm-hmm. and then they all formed bands. And I think there's a story like that with the Clash as well. I think there was the same similar story where there happened to be a group of people in in a Clash show, and they all formed bands. You know, mm-hmm. and these are like the Echo and the Bunnymen's and the Susie and the Banshees and the Cures and all those guys all happen to be in. And I think when you put, and I think all of them are like. They're all art students, and a lot of that happened in New York too, with the Velvet Underground and and all these bands, you know. Emerging punk rock, in a lot of ways, is like the British Invasion, as far as like the British Invasion 
a lot of those kids were art school students. The Beatles were, Pete Townsend was, um, I don't know if, um, if Keith Richards or Mick Jagger were actually art students, but I mean, they, there was all these same circles. And then you listen to all that early stuff when they're just playing rhythm and blues, like you had the Yardbirds, the Beatles, the Animals, the Move, the Kinks, the Who, like they all started kind of like how pub rock started where they're just playing R&B covers and just really learning how to be bands. And then they start like, oh, we're gonna be like this, we're gonna be like this. Same thing with pub rock. You listen to the early Sex Pistols, they're covering Small Faces songs. They're covering uh, Gary Glitter songs. They're covering, you know what I mean? Like Slade songs, like Slade was a huge influence on all that punk rock stuff, like all the glam stuff, you know? And a lot, and like sensation, the sensational Alex Harvey band, you know? Like the, the glam rock, like David Bowie and T-Rex, they were glam, they were like the stars. But then you listen to like Slade, you listen to Sweet, Mont the Hoople, um, Sensational Alex Harvey Band. They're like punk rock glam where they're just like, they're fucking ugly. They don't give a shit. They're singing about fucking like anal sex and just about like all kinds of crazy shit and looking all fucked up. Like that's how, you know, like, like Queen, that's like a nice package. Yeah. David Bowie, like, that's like the pedestal, you know what I mean? Yeah. All these other bands are like the dirty, gritty, like, you know, I could see how they could be like a little bit more aligned with, you know, because you think about it, same thing with like New York. It's like, where did these people come up with, like, how did they put it all together? You know, I think New York had a lot more originality because it was just by default you know like i don't think richard hell he even tells it where it's like he didn't put safety pins in his shirts because it was fashionable it was because his fucking shirt was falling apart he couldn't afford to buy a new money, shirt <laughs> you know so by the time it gets to the, the in england it's not that they weren't angry and they weren't having like you know just trash in the streets and no money and everyone's fucking broke so they definitely had something to say they just didn't know how to channel it. So they're listening to these dirty glam rock bands and they're listening to old bands from the 60s, all the mod shit, all the, you know, some reggae stuff and then putting it together and then you have pub rock underneath all of it that's just building, 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 turning into that, you know? It's yeah. like the Stranglers, Stranglers came out in 77 too, but they were all older. They're actually technically a pub rock band that were i mean they're just they're just older than everybody else you know same thing with like uh like cox bar those guys are like already in their 30s by the time they're coming out like they started in like 1972. You oh know? wow um and uh, what's another one that's like like older guys I'm trying to think uh but i mean there was a handful of them i and i <clears throat> oh what's also... his name from the from the uk subs uh can't think of his name the singer but he was already an old man too by the time they were coming around you know mm. playing like i think a lot of uh, or i think a little bit of um because like you think you listen to 
these genres of music we're talking about. You think you listen to the pub rock, you listen to the rockabilly, and you listen to like the Stooges really, ha- and the Ro- Ramones had this really, you know, they were really different sounds. What made that sound? You know what made that sound stand out, and how did it form into like this particular like ep- you know the the origins of what we consider punk, like original punk rock, nineteen seventy seven, Sex Pistols, you know, Damn, Clash, all that stuff. And one of the things that I hear that that may be just it's just my own opinion because it's my ears, but a lot of the crot rock stuff because they were using different sound they were getting different sounds out of stuff so you listen to a band like faust um totally just this weird band that made these weird albums where none of the songs sound the same you know one song they repeat the the chorus over and over and over and over again and it's i feel like that like somebody got a hold of this you know like a faust album and or Pirubu or whatever, and they're like, oh, what are these guys doing? What is this What is this weird, you know, out of the left field kind of like experimental music mm. combining the experimental in, in the terms of like repetitiveness? So you repeat a lot of the same thing. Like Ramones repeat, you know, mm-hmm. the thing over and over and over again. The Clash does it. Sex Pistols do it. It's. I feel like they took a little tiny piece of that and plugged it into what, like the rockabilly, you know, uh, and and rockabilly in the sense of just the the structure of the the bass structure of the song, not the sound of it. I think what you're talking about though might be because another another band that was around that's a completely like like an outlier that came out at the same time is Wire. Oh yeah, Wire. That album doesn't sound like any of these albums. They to me were the ones that maybe were listening to kraut rock and listening, you know, taking chances and kind of being more punk than anybody in the sense of like there are no rules. And I think going back though to like you're talking about the Ramones and the Stooges, like yeah, the Stooges you can say because they're label mates and they were contemporaries, they kind of sound like the MC5, but they are their own thing. They also kind of sound like the Doors. Um, they were trying to be the Doors to a degree, but with like the Stooges. The Velvet Underground and the Ramones, what I hear is just musicians that were not hung up on skill or talent and just being like, let's just let's let's run with the ideas that we have. And I think that's how you get this organic, like fresh, like sound, you know, like even with the Ramones, even if it's just if you could just say, oh, well, it just sounds like Phil Spector, like it just sounds like 50s or 60s like uh you know girl band like rock just sped up and you know a little bit harder edged still the idea they did it you know yeah, I mean? yeah that nobody else was doing yeah and to me that's not like someone saying now where it's like oh you know what let's mix um hip-hop with uh kraut rock or you know what i mean like now it's just it's just people it's almost like fusion cooking where it's like, you know what? Let's make Korean tacos. It's like, don't ever make Korean tacos. You know what I mean? Like, that's just fucking stupid. Like, to me. So no, then with, I, with music, it's I agree. Like, I feel like it's really hard to be original. Just contrived. Nowadays. In, 
in that sense like it's really really hard to be an original you know you got to go make some classical music to be original right now and it was hard back then too though if you think yeah. about it you know you listen to Clash's first record that's what we're talking about yeah there's nothing on there that's revolutionary there's nothing on there that you can't say oh well this sounds like that you know and go back 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 you can say that about fucking first five Rolling Stones records you can say that but but it's the Clash definitely did use that as their starting point where they just got in a studio and it was like, oh, we're making a record. Let's just record every song we know. And then they get to give them enough rope. And then they get to London Calling, which where they really are just like, now they're a band that's here to stay. And I mean, there's so many different styles on that, you know, so much like such a big creative work and again if you think about it maybe not anything like really revolutionary in the sense that i mean the, the title track london calling sounds like it's like a rockabilly song you know it has the 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 same um tempo and and then you get a song like spanish bombs you get a song like uh train and train vain yeah there's definitely these moments where it's like if anything, the originality that they have is by the time they get to that point, it's like they they sound like themselves, you know? Like the Damned, you listen to some of their records as they go, they kind of turn into something else. Wire turns into com something completely different. Um, you know, even later bands like Gang of Fours, like there's all these different paths that people took. Um, maybe it was following trends, maybe it was trying to stay ahead of the curve, but I feel like the Clash were just like, they just made their own way, you know, like, um, and there's a reason why it only went so far, I think. I think that they probably would have ran out, you know. Same thing, like, when I think of the police, like, the police, once they get to, like, their third record, and that's another band where it's just like, they kind of started punk rock, but then they had way more to say, but they didn't necessarily, they didn't go new wave, they didn't go pop, they didn't go power pop, they were the police. Just like The Clash, you know? They started punk rock, and then they turned into The Clash. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of other bands, there's bands that never broke up from that time period, and they still sound the same. Yeah. Or, they change so much where they're just, it's not even identifiable anymore of what, like where they went. But with The Clash, it's not necessarily a straight line, but that DNA is like, it's definitely a path. You know, you can hear stuff on Combat Rock that sounds like their first record. You know what I mean? And stuff all along the way, at least the way I see it. Yeah, and it's funny because like now, like Mick Jones has a, had, had a new project a couple years ago. What, the carbon, carbon silicon? Or? Yeah. Hmm. And it's just a big audio dynamite record. It's really, like, you could tell, like, that was his lane. And that's the lane that he, you know, Train to Vane was the beginning of the big audio mm -hmm. dynamite lane that he chose to be in. And not knowing anything about Joe wanting to be, Joe Strummer wanting to be a folk singer. But when you listen to the solo Joe Strummer albums, and you're like, oh, shit, now it makes sense. That's what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be a Woody Guthrie he wanted to be heralded as a Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, kind of mm -hmm. like lyrical, 
you know, what do you call those guys? The uh, uh, a troubadour, mm. like a troubadour, and and so like he, you know, seeing them go in those two separate ways, you know, prior to Joe Strummer's passing, um, but you can see like the what they had together created something that wasn't e- like either of those things. It's a little bit more of the Mick influence, you know, a little bit more of the big audio dynamite influence, but nothing in the clash, uh, catalog that I can think of that had the, the, what Joe was actually trying to do in sense of like the crooning troubadour folky kind of stuff. Like there's not too many songs in their catalog that I feel cover that as much as like the big audio dynamite, yeah, um, well, and, you know, style. There's, like, there's some hints of that. Like, Ghetto Defendant is kind of like that. Um, uh, Sean Flynn. Um, but then it's also because, and I think it's mostly Paul Simon because where he grew up. I think he grew up in Shepherd's Bush. That's where, um, that's where the small faces are from. Mm. And um, there was a big, like, Jamaican influence in that particular part of London. So that's why he was listening to lots of reggae. And some of those songs, like a song like Ghetto Defendant, it's like Joe Strummer singing like a folk singer, but to reggae. But then what's reggae? Like Bob Marley is a folk singer. Yeah, that's it's well, just, it even covers a Bob Marley song, you know I mean? a redemption song. Yeah. Yeah. I just think of the <laughs> when you're talking about Paul Simonon and where he grew up and he's like reggae I, the part of the movie where he's talking about in in the in the West Don Way? in the Don mm-hmm. Letts movie where he's talking about his brother listening to Yes mm-hmm. and he's like, What the fuck is this you listening There's to all these birds, birds chirping. chirping and what is this shit? I wanna hear some fucking reggae. Like I'm mm-hmm. That little clip always gets me. Like that shit's so fucking funny, and I like yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> not well, as much as. That's another big thing is the retaliation that all these bands had to like. They were just like, we're never gonna be that good. I'm never gonna be able to play the guitar like Steve Hackett. Never gonna be able to play the drums as good as Phil Collins. So there were these kids, and they were just like, let's do what we can do, and. A lot of it was a hot mess when it started, you know? Yeah. One of the most infamous bands that never put anything out was, like, the the London SS. That was where it was... At one point, it was Mick Jones. It was um, Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. It was... Um, what's his name? Tony James from Generation X. Did it? It was, like, a super group that never... Did that, didn't Chrissy Hines play drums for some of these bands? She was in the in one of the first versions of The Damned. I don't think she was the drummer. She wasn't the drummer? I don't oh. think so. But it was just all these people figuring shit out at the same time. You know, like... Um, and... Um, then you, you know, I don't know. There was the bands that... Uh, like, Generation X, I think they put out a go- couple good records... But at that point, it was more like, okay, not kind of the real deal. Still sounds good, but at that point, it was like, like even though they're there with everyone, they're not like the adverts. Like the adverts have that like reckless abandonment where they don't sound too good. The damned were just better than anybody. They could really play, but they also had like, they would fucking fight on stage, destroy everything. Like, they just didn't give a shit. They didn't care if anyone played with them. They did that big tour where I think it was it was the Anarchy in the UK tour. It was like the Sex Pistols, 
uh, might have been the damned and the stranglers. I don't know what it was. Maybe the buzzcocks. But apparently they had like 10 or 12 dates booked through Europe. After like the first one or two shows, the whole thing got canceled because Sex Pistols were too whatever. But the Damned kept going. And the Damned was the first band that came to the States and they played at CBGB's. Like the Damned was kind of like the black flag of the States where they were just the band that was like, fuck it, we're just going to go anywhere that will have us and we're going to spread our gospel. Um, so like the Clash is like concerned with, oh, we signed to CBS. Now, you know, they they were all about contracts and about making money and turning the imagery like the damned were just like a fucking band, you know, and that's why they didn't last as that long as that like unit, because, you know, Brian James, I believe only plays on the first two records. He leaves the band. Captain Sensible changes from bass to guitar. They find out, fuck, he can write amazing songs. Yeah. They get another bass player and then they keep going. And then Brian James forms, uh, well, I think he did like a solo record in between there, but then he, they, he forms the Lords of the New Church with Stiv Baders from the Dead Boys. Um, so definitely like a total different camp, you know. Sex Pistols manufactured, only put one record out, wasn't ever going to last that long to begin with, but more concerned about headlines and making money and this and that. Same thing kind of to a degree with The Clash, but the thing that I do give The Clash credit for, no matter how my opinion of them has changed is that they had the musical talent to back it up all the way. Def uh, yeah, they definitely had the talent. I mean, the Mick Jones uh, guitar work on it is just, it, it's super, it's super influential to a lot of the bands that came on, you know, came after them. Mm -hmm. A lot of his, you know, his like pretty guitar work on a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And you think of like punk rock, you don't think of like pretty guitar, but like, uh, Steve Jones, his guitar work is amazing mm -hmm. on that first Pistols record. There's also a billion guitars on it, but yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, but it's like, he still had to play. Oh, yeah. You know, he had to play those parts. Yeah, he had a good rock and roll style. <clears throat> and, and you don't think of, you know, a lot of the stuff, like, especially, especially the stuff around us when we were growing up like we'd go to live shows and we'd go see I mean I don't know how many bands I've sat through and I'm just like you sat through terrible 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 bands mm -hmm. and then you go back and you're just like you know what even if this is not the most remarkable record in the world there's something about it that has it's complete everything mm -hmm. on it is complete everyone is playing their part there's no real there's no real um, weak link in the in the well, that, and that's the key is that any good band has to have that chemical reaction of its members where no one's it's not that it's either it's either they're all stars or like to me like the who like they're just they're all stars when you listen to so like you listen to live at leeds even when roger daltrey's just screaming and yelling you got four guys that are just soloing the whole time if that's what you like you know some people might prefer Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin's another good example. All of those guys are fucking stars. There's not, it's not like, like, you know, some bands nowadays, maybe it's like there's like the songwriter and the singer are really talented and they might have like a good drummer and then the bass player is just the bass player. You know, like The Clash, I don't think, like Topper Heaton, he's a great drummer. Like he's the perfect drummer for that band. It's fucking solid. 
keeps the beat, swings it, does everything that you you need him to do. Joe Strummer, uh, you know, the way that he sings, the way that he plays rhythm guitar, Mick Jones, the songs that he writes, his singing style too is, it's like you got two singers that can't sing, but it works. And then Paul Simonon's even fucking worse. But like the Guns of Brixton, like you can't have any other vocal on that track. Sounds great. You know, and Paul Simonon will probably like be the self-defeatist that he is as far as his musical talent because he's not the best but like he's the best for that band yeah you know so you got these four guys he fits and that's why when you know when terry chimes comes back in it's not the same and then when mick jones leaves they put out another record as the clash which was sacrilege it's like that's not the clash like you know just like if the beatles like if if the beatles never broke up and John Lennon died, and they still, and they got someone else, or like when if they would have replaced uh, John Bonham, you know that wouldn't have been the same band. No. It's like the Who kept going with Kenny Jones from the Small Faces, but that's not the Who, you know. But then you have like a like Rolling Stones. I don't think Bill Wyman is anything to to discount, but is he integral in the Rolling Stones? You know what I mean, like. Charlie Watts is. Keith Richards definitely. You can't have the Rolling Stones without Keith Richards, and you can't have those songs without Mick Jagger singing them. But I think for the Stones, it's it's Keith and Mick all the way. Charlie, I don't think Charlie is a is anything. He's not a phenom of any of any no, sort. But he's he, the perfect drummer yeah, he, for that. He's band. perfect for them. But the Stones are third. It's it's Keith and Mick. Like whoever well, you put in is. there, it's Keith and Mick. But Brian Jones, you know, departing and or not departing, but dying, uh, and and bringing in, you know. Well, he to me, he's like the Stuart Sutcliffe of the Beatles. Like, I don't think the Beatles would have turned into them if they didn't have that guy. Yeah, you know, they wouldn't have probably known. They probably still would have got there, and they would have found their talent. But sometimes it does take the person with the vision to make it happen. You know, just like I don't know, I don't know that much, but I think Paul Simonon's probably the one that had a lot to do with their aesthetic, as far as artistically. Oh yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty sure he was the art student. Yeah, I don't know if. Oh yeah, if, he was. Yeah, he was like the art school student. He was the one hanging out with that crowd. And, and that's part of the package, yeah. you know. It's like those guys, to a degree, yeah, they were creating all that stuff then. You know, there, there was yeah. no template for it. No. There was no, and regardless that, yeah, maybe you could look at New York and say that it was, you know. Because also, I mean, another big band that went out there that did some early touring was like the Flaming Groovies. Like the Flaming Groovies took the Ramones out there the first time. They played with the Heartbreakers out there where the UK really got their like dose of like what the fuck's happening and but you think about those three bands right there they're all rock and roll bands the Ramones are the little guys and they just look like they look like fucking shot on up they look like a fucking street gang um I don't think that New York was so concerned with the imagery in the sense of how to package and sell it you know i mean you look at early talking rec talking uh, heads records blondie television i think they were just more concerned about like making music they just wanted to play they wanted a place to play yeah like 
and then but then you know then you get to you know it's like the clash like look at even look at give enough give them enough rope like the artwork it's like man they're these guys are fucking making a statement they're they're turning something into like a statement that really they couldn't just follow you know how some people it's like you look at old classic jazz records and there's an there blue note has an aesthetic verve has an aesthetic um even like blues like chess records there's all these things I don't think punk rock had something to pull from as far as like the British uh, punk rock first wave to create that, you know, because to me, when I was a kid, too, I would see like an exploited cover and I'm like fucking Mohawk and Spikes. That's punk rock casualties. You could just yeah. identify it like that. Yeah. Um, if you walked into a record store and you've never heard of a band, you knew which was the punk band. Exactly, you know. By the cut, you know, it was... Or by shirts. And it was also the... We're going to cut out pieces of paper, photocopy it, just real primitive and rudimentary, like, stylistic stuff. As as shitty as some of it looked, it was really thought out, you know, Mm -hmm. to do this. Well, it was... And the cutout... The cutouts and the and the and the stenciling and all that—that's all punk. That's all like, mm-hmm. and that's that was just album covers. And then, oh, we're gonna make a punk flyer, which is a huge aesthetic in itself. And we're gonna go from the punk cover, like just the Nevermind the Bullocks album cover, mm-hmm. you know, blank. Yeah, cut and paste. Cut just and the Sex letters. Pistols logo. It's like <laughs> yeah, cut, cut and paste. Cut and pasted letters over a solid background and the coloring was all clash you know it was like pink and and green it was attention grabbing yeah and you you can't deny that that is a punk you know uh, yeah aesthetic and it just that all goes back to you know the manufacturing of like we need to make ourselves look like we belong to this particular camp and i think that's why there's that certain privilege in the British wave of punk rock that because you have all these art school students that are behind a lot of this stuff. You look at the Ramones first record came out in 1976, a year before that, they're just standing against a wall wearing the clothes that they fucking died in. And it's just hot pink with their logo. That's it. You know, but they did have a professional artist do their logo. Well, of course, not their logo, (laughs) but I don't even think they Maybe they had their logo by then, but what I'm saying is just like, no, no, you yeah. look at that album cover, to me, that's like the Dams cover. Damn, damn, damn. They're all covered in fucking cake and soot yeah. and shit, you know? But then you look at The Clash, like, that's a photo session. Not that the Ramones is it, but you know what I mean? It's like yeah. there's there's more, and like you are saying about like the Sex Pistols, um, I don't know if there was many people in the New York scene that were pr- particularly art students or, you know... I mean, I know Patti Smith had, like... I mean, she was hanging out with... What's his name? Uh, Robert Maplethorpe. Robert Maplethorpe, yeah. And there's definitely ties, but I don't think it was the same sensibility, you know? Because if, like, The Clash 2, they have similarities to, like, The Rolling Stones and The Beatles, where you have the two guys running the show that were, like, middle, if not upper-middle-class privileged kids that were just like, oh, let's be a band. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't fucking, like, four deadbeats... In the Ramones that were fucking getting chased out of places and subways and just being like, we're going to, this is the only thing we know how to do. We have to do it as best we can forever. Otherwise, we're going to die homeless on the street. 
there's none of that over there you yeah know? i mean there is some but that's i think comes a little later with like street punks you know and oi and skinhead um which gets kind of overlooked and looked down upon because it's not because it's too real you know like mm -hmm. a sham 69 is going to be scary to someone but it's like you listen to what they're singing about they're they're singing about what they're living through they're not trying to be this pied piper like you know oh i'm joe strummer just you know two weeks ago i was doing something else but now i fucking cut my hair and am i punk is this cool right you know but people <clears throat> bought it you know but again can't deny that the talent is there i just feel indifferent about it now yeah and i think if you look at the direct the two major bands that the clash are the direct these two bands are the direct descendants of the clash are green day and the uh the the tim armstrong band rancid rancid and it's like you look at who those guys are not my favorites I, i'll listen to rancid more than i listen to green day i'm not a big fan of green day i i'm not saying that i don't think that they deserve the recognition they they did they made some pretty you know good albums never bought one of their records mm. but you look at like who those guys are and it makes sense that those are the direct descendants of something like the clash like something that that manufacture you know what i mean like it's mm. it's if you really think about like to me uh rancid more than green day rancid is just a clash cover band if you really break them down mm. yeah it's it's also after a certain point it's like 10 15 years later no but no i'm saying oh, like oh. in their history like their first record oh, oh i see what you're saying their first record street punk and even the picture of the band on the back cover they're wearing they look like east bay punk rockers they're wearing fucking hoodies and they look like skate skate youth with the what's his, the that was more of the guy who the operation ivy guy right the well both two of them are in operation ivy oh matt freeman the bass player and the singer um but who am i thinking of in lars frederickson no he comes in later oh, okay that wasn't just his influence though but then then you fast forward to their next thing and now all of a sudden tim armstrong has a fucking mohawk and he's playing a hollow body fucking uh gretch and he's all covered in tattoos and he's wearing leather and it's like what happened here yeah and then their music that's when they sound like the clash you oh see so yeah, I, I guess i don't even know their anything before the one where they just the first came record's out it's great it's but it's it's like street punk it's like mm. it's totally different you know and see i didn't know them until i heard when i first heard them mm -hmm. I was like, is this is this lost Clash tapes? Mm. You know, and they were like, well, oh, the sad thing, and I'm glad rancid. this never happened, but <laughs> they were supposed to do a Clash reunion with him singing. Ooh. That would have been awful. I'd rather go see the fucking Dio hologram show <laughs> and pay for front row to see that bullshit than fucking <laughs> but, Dio um, hologram. That's going to happen. Are you serious? It's happening. Why? Who would go to that? Who the fuck knows? Who loves Dio that much? I don't know. Does anybody love Dio? I I know one guy who loves Dio is Mark's neighbor. <laughs> Web. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I don't know anybody who would go to a Dio hologram show. Heaven and Hell's a good record. Mob Rules. I like that. I'm but just no. not a Dio fan. Like, Last Rainbow. in Line is one song I know, and then yeah. 
Molly. I'll be the last in line for that show. I'm, I'm not going. You. you will not catch me at the Dio hologram show. But yeah, I probably would rather go there too than than go to a Tim Armstrong fronted Clash cover band. Um, but and not to take away from the this album, like it's it's cemented in in punk history. It's not no matter what it took to get there. No matter what posing you know these guys or one of the members or any and all of the members did <clears throat> this is a phenomenal record yeah. in 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 all of its you know i love it but i think that it's i think it's a lot more dated and maybe this is just to the sound quality i think it's a lot more dated than the damned and the sex pistols if we're just talking about those three and also one well just throwing wire there too um Meaning that, and it could just, I don't know, like, again, I love it. I could listen to it back to front, but to me, it's, it sounds dated. So if we, um, so in, in the, in the rating of this record, just in their own catalog, it's not my favorite. London Calling is definitely the forefront, the, you know, the, the front runner for me in this, in this band's, uh, catalog. Yeah. Um, rating this album, you know, without going into historical, like learning about the times and all that, just listening to the album as a whole, just the album exists in itself. I'm going to say it's an eight, you know, compared to, to everything else that came out at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, considering the time that it came out, considering the, the people that it was, you know, it's, it's, uh, was rubbing shoulders with yeah you know like it's like you put you know i'm not even putting it up up against the clash i mean up against the sex pistols or up against the damned i'm just thinking of in terms of like how awesome would it be to have these three albums come out in the same year like just in that in that sense like i don't want to i don't want to put them down i want to be like wow how great it is to have these three great albums coming out in the same fucking year you Mm -hmm. know like you get the Dam's first album, you get the Sex Pistols first album, you get this album. It's like, what a great year for music, in, 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 especially when you're coming down to just boiling it down to a genre of punk rock. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> not, even, not even putting it up against those you know, other two records, just in and of itself, I'm saying it's a, it's a seven for what it, you know, the stories that it's told, the way that it's put together, the musicianship, Everything about it is a solid seven, you know, for me. In, in you said eight at first. Sorry, I correct myself. <laughs> you can just—he's slashing prices, y'all. I correct myself. Eight. I'm gonna say it's a six. Really though, if you think about the lyrics, it's like a fucking That's five like a all the way. So, man, um, I think it's an eight for me too, which is—it's totally doesn't make any sense because. I gave Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails a nine, which I don't own and don't ever listen to. I gave Nevermind, which I don't even like Nirvana. I gave that a nine. Here's an album that was my pick that changed my life that I love, and I'm I'm lowering the rating. But I think it's because, like I said, I don't know. It's weird. Like it's it sounds dated. It's um, definitely definitely lost the point 
a huge point when I found out what I found out about Joe Strummer because just the lyricism doesn't like the chord that it struck with me and why that was a big part of why what what that record meant to me I think mm. and then now it was just like well I can't really believe what you're saying man like it, it, it doesn't mean shit anymore um, but musically songs are great uh, I think the production could have been a little better could be my copy you know it's the nice price I mean what do you expect for fucking four bucks that's two dollars a side <laughs> <a> nice price <laughs> so not in the not that we're professors or anyone listens to us or anybody's gonna go on our recommendations but like in in the day and age that we're in now and the kids that are discovering music i would definitely place an importance on this record for kids discovering music and say you need to listen to this record and i don't mean it in the sense of like i'm a dad pointing my finger waving my finger yeah i mean it in the sense of like if you really appreciate music and you really are serious about you know learning about you know the history of music and it you know and if you're just a a fan of music, I think this is a this is an album that you have to have in your library to pull from, even if it is dated, even if it is you know the the backstory about what you know Joe Strummer's life or everything like that. But the just even just the recording of the album mm. is nice. Like I know you're saying you had a bad copy, but if you listen to it digital, you know if you listen to it on tape and you put the headphones on. I don't, I don't hear anything poor in the recording of it. Could just be my my copy. Yeah, and um, I and I think it's like something that I would always recommend people to listen to. But I loved it. I mean, I I still love it. Like it's like I said, like when I really got into it, it was just like I couldn't stop listening to it. You know, and I I like I like um, the uh, you know like London Calling. I'm I'm a fan of their whole catalog as the Clash, like with Mick Jones. Um, but to me, it was like, that's the one. And that isn't the first thing that I heard by them, but that's the one that really turned me into a fan for life. Um, what was I going to say? But again, like the whole, you know, like, I remember I just read this uh, not that long ago because I'm a big, I'm a Genesis fan too. Early Genesis with Peter Gabriel. Um, and it was Peter Gabriel talking about how he had a problem with Joe Strummer, where he was just saying like, you know, cause Genesis was a band too that were like, maybe not super, but like to a degree affluent kids that started an art rock group and, but weren't, weren't unashamed of it and weren't trying to like hide anything of their past. And like, he was just basically saying, he doesn't understand how people like a Joe Strummer are just like, well, let's just keep that under the carpet because it's gonna possibly hurt the image of what we're trying to do. And at that point, it's like, well, yeah, it's because you're selling a product, mm. you know? And any band, especially back then, like, of course, bands are putting out their art and they're making records and they're getting signed to major labels and they're going on tours and they're making a living. They have every person that did that deserves that because they fucking put in the effort and they actually made, they left the world a library of whether you like this, that, or the other, it's there for the world forever, um, which I think is great. But there comes a point when, when you're connected, like Genesis, I don't think I see them as they were trying to change the world. 
I don't think the damned was trying to change the world. The Sex Pistols definitely had an agenda, but the Clash to me came across as like, this is like a voice and this is something like, you know, even by the, they would play like the Rock Against, or what they played some big show where it was like Rock Against the National Front, whatever, like being really political. They wouldn't go on top of the pops. They would only do certain things. They, I think there was something where, even when they played the Us Festival, it had to be a certain thing where it wasn't about money, but it's like, yeah, wasn't about money because you guys didn't need it and you're preaching all this like stuff and you're saying all these things but to me it's like I mean basically I it's not that I would take my vote back but maybe I never would have voted in the first place if that makes sense like basically like you know having a politician that's running for office that's like I'm gonna stick up for the I'm one of you guys it's like no you're not you're not one of us, so shut your mouth, you know, and don't lie to me and, and tell me that you are when you're not. That's the thing that I just have a lack of respect for. Um, and then the, 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 other, the last thing I was going to say, just about what we're doing, our, our project, podcast. Um, the last one, there was a lot of mistakes on my part, which, like I was talking about the wrong people, giving the wrong names. Like I kept saying... Andrew Fletcher this that and the other from Depeche Mode like as if I was gonna go and suck his dick um, <laughs> it's Alan Wilder actually I got them confused that's always happened to me even from childhood um, there's certain producers that we left out um, from that record so we're not trying to again like my brother said it earlier we're not historians and we're not trying to you know we're not teaching a class this that and the other um, so you know if if you have a problem with it, you can go to hell. Or you can just make your own podcast. <laughs> if you have a problem with it, you can go straight to hell to quote The Clash. Um, all right. Uh, that's it. Hey.